take back all the stuff I said about you. Good morning. Are you feisty today? Oh, I like that. I like that. Good deal. So, uh, you in the mood to have a little fun? I don't know what your view is of God. I don't want to mess with it too bad. Uh, that was a lie. I'm sorry. <laughs> Would it surprise you to know that Father's in a good mood today? You know, the Bible says in Psalms, too, that he just laughs in heaven. He laughs over the plans of the earth, you know, wicked people. He just laughs. He chuckles. God has a sense of humor. I mean, come on, look at Jesus and the disciples. Come on, that relationship was comical, all right? I'm just saying. God loves you. He's glad to be here. He's glad to be with you today. So we're in a series called Bigger Than, and we're talking about worldview. And uh, I wanted to kind of reintroduce, uh, kind of reintroduce this again. Uh, just to kind of keep us on tap so we didn't lose our way. I wanted us to understand why we're doing this and why it's important. Worldview is fundamental to everything you believe. Often the conclusions you come to in life are predetermined by the view with which you start. And so that's why worldview is so important. Now there are at least, well, it's been theorized that there are like 27 worldviews. Uh, I'm not talking about 27 worldviews because I don't like to be boring. I like to have fun, okay? But I'm going to talk about basically two. The biblical Christian worldview, which is the disciples' worldview, and everybody else. <laughs> now you're sitting there going, well, that's really arrogant. No, when you're right, you're just right. That's not arrogant. Amen? All right, so, so this view asks a lot of questions. It starts out with the idea of what can actually be known, which I'm symbolizing with my readers, which I'll put on later because they make me look smarter than I am. So whenever I need to look smart... Those will go on, okay? So anyway, but I'm not that smart, so you'll see right through that, and you'll see my inner uh, country come out. And so, uh, but anyway, so it starts with that, what can be known? And then we tackle the question as we go through this of who is God? And I would argue that as a Christian worldview, you have a view of God that is, that God, the God of the Bible is God. Why that's significant is because that means that the Bible defines who God is for you, what God is like. And in doing so, that means your understanding of God could change according to what the Bible says. Many people have their own view of God. They have an idea of what God is like, and they will always interpret God as like what they already believe. That is a worldview. In that worldview, you are God. Because you get to create who God is. That's why this is so important. If you get to decide who God is and what God is like, then you are God. Because you are in control of God. Does that make sense? Give me a nod, even if you don't. He was like, yeah, I feel better now. See, you've affirmed me. Very good job, okay? In that worldview, we have the question of who am I? I mean, if there's a God, then who am I in that relationship? And then if we, we tackle the ideas of what is good, what is wrong, because we, we have to admit that the world is a broken place. And then, depending on all of those, we eventually come to a conclusion of, well, what's next? What happens after I die? What happens in the world? What's, what's going to happen in my country for my kids? Whatever it is, okay? Now, the problem with this worldview is that, or with a worldview where I am God, where I make all the decisions, where I judge God, is basically I trap my worldview inside of itself. And so I begin, when I make myself the source and I make myself God and I make myself judge, 
Sorry, this is uh, not working out as well as it did last time. It was so much cooler last time. Try to remember it cool. Then everything I see is trapped by me. I can only see so high because I'm the source of all information. Does that make sense? But what if I let God be God? And then I realize that in God's economy... I have a place as his son. Then I realize that he decides what's good, and my goal in life is not to be happy, but to be holy. I'm elevating my view. And then in the concept of what's wrong in the world, now it's not chance that drives everything crazy. It's a thing called sin, because God tells me so in his word. And then when it comes to the issue of what's next, it's not nothing, it's eternity. Now I set my what can be known up there, and now I have elevated my position. I have enabled myself to receive not only natural knowledge, but supernatural. This is why this is important. If I don't build these on who God is, I end up trapped in my own world, my own viewpoint. My conclusions in life will end up like everybody else's, also trapped and limited by their very ignorant and limited point of view. I don't mean ignorance and insult. I just mean ignorant as not knowing. Does that make sense? So today, first week, we talked about how that God is the source. And we looked at the story of creation. And then in the second week, uh, last week, Michael looked at how God is the judge. And he looked at Noah's Ark a bit. And we, so we start building our worldview that, with the fact that everything comes from God, God is source. And we jump into the next part of the worldview is that God is judge. He's the one I'm accountable to. I'm going to live this life, and then he's the one I have to answer to. By the way, that is the number one reason people don't believe in God. It's not because they don't have evidence of God. It's because they don't want to be accountable to God. And so it's easier to, be, to, to, to dismiss and make God a myth in your mind than it is to realize, oh, I'm accountable to someone who created me. Well, today we're looking at a different aspect of God, very, very important, and it's simply this. God is good. I heard one over there. I was going to try it one more time. God is good. And all the time. I'm going to add one more thing to you today. I need you to follow me because this is stupid. When I do this, I just want you to go, doot, doot. I see you. He's like, there ain't no way I'm doing that. I know, it's stupid. But, uh, some of you will play along, and that's good enough for me. That works for me. So God is good. So today we're going to drive that home. This is a theological point. It's, it's critical for everything. In fact, every one of the worldview statements we're making, you, you've got to get these locked in. You've got to get them all locked in. Because without them, you put yourself in a place of authority over God and over God's word. And that's why this worldview is so important. We have to put ourselves under the authority of God and under his word. Okay. So today we're talking about the idea that God is good. Uh, we're going to tackle a few questions in that. Uh, we've already looked at our worldview statements, and we're going to talk about Joshua chapter 5 and 6 today. The fall of the wall of Jericho. All right, okay, we're almost there. You're like, I'm going to have to look at him if he does that. I don't know if I can handle that. My stomach's nervous. Anyway. So I want to start with the Gospel of Joshua. You may not have heard that phrase before. I might have just invented it. You never know. 
But as we get into the book of Joshua, one of the first things we need to realize is that the name Joshua is the Hebrew form of the name Jesus. So G Joshua, you hear me talk a lot. If you listen to me teach very much, I use this expression called literal metaphors. They are things that actually happened, but they mean so much more. And that's what we see in the book of Joshua. We see the gospel take place. And we see it in metaphor form before Jesus comes and produce, and, and purchases it for us in, literal, in a literal way. So let's start with Joshua chapter 1, verse 2 and 3. I just want to read this passage because I want you to connect with Joshua as the anointed of the Lord. Moses, my servant, is dead, God is saying to Joshua. Therefore, the time has come for you to lead these people, the Israelites, across the Jordan River and into the land I'm giving them. I promise you what I promised Moses. Wherever you set foot, you will be on land I have given you. Man, that's a good promise right there. If I had my Bible out there, I would probably underline it since I just did it. I already did it in mine. But anyway, so just, I don't know. Everywhere we set your foot, that land's yours. So Jesus and Joshua, same names. So we are looking at, there's more in this story than just a historical narrative is the main thing I want to drive home, okay? Second thing that I want to point out that happens before the fall of the walls of Jericho is that the nation of Israel got baptized, now, I don't know if I want to say again or if I want to say finished. Because the Bible says in Joshua 3.17, it says, Meanwhile, the priests, they're going into the promised land, into Canaan. The priests are carrying the Ark of the Lord's Covenant, stood on the dry ground in the middle of the riverbed as the people passed by, and they waited there until the whole nation of Israel had crossed the Jordan on dry ground. So when God came and got the nation of Israel out of Egypt, he split the Red Sea, took them out of slavery but not yet into the promise. This is important. They spent 40 years in a wilderness. That was not God's design. God did not want them to spend 40 years in the wilderness. He was prepared for it, but he didn't want it. Then, as we enter into the, the battle for Jericho, first thing that happens is the Joshua generation, I want to come back to that, is they finish, I'm going to say they finish the baptism that was started in the Red Sea. Why am I going to say that? Because of how God looks at it in Psalms 114. It's, as, as the psalmist is writing this out, he says, The Red Sea saw them coming and hurried out of the way. The water of the Jordan turned away. So in God's mind, what started in the Red Sea finished at the Jordan River in some way. And so this, this people came out of slavery into a wilderness Took them 40 years to get to the promise. A few words about the Jordan. I probably shouldn't spend a lot of time here, but it's so cool I can't help it, you know? So you've got, this is a cool river. The nation of Israel parts it to go in. Elijah parted it when he was going to commission Elisha. Elisha parted it when he was coming back from his ordination. John the Baptist baptized in it. Jesus was baptized in the Jordan. Uh, just, just a really cool place, this Jordan River. A lot of things. Uh, Naaman was cured of leprosy in the Jordan River. So just a, a very, just, just cool. God has a lot of things he wants to teach us uh, through the Jordan River and brings us through it. But here's what I want to point out about it. We find out when we read Joshua 5 that when they came through the Jordan River that all their enemies in Canaan lost heart. Remember that? You guys, not me, if you've been, remember that from Sunday school. Oh, yeah, when they got through the Jordan River, it freaked out everyone in Canaan. You, you remember it now. 
When did Satan come after Jesus? After he was baptized in Jordan. I just wanted to make one little point that's kind of aside from the sermon, but it's so important I want to make it. We spend so much of our lives afraid of the enemy and foolishly do not realize that the enemy is terrified of us. And I think that's good, man. That's good. Let's get a hold of that. We need to get a hold of that. Hell is scared of you. So I like that. So uh, they walk through the wilderness, Joshua generation. They, get, they go through the Jordan. They finish the baptism. comes out. I'm going to come back to that in just a minute. Then they go through the circumcision. And I love talking about circumcision in church. <laughs> that was a lie. <laughs> anyway, I just want to make some points about it. The 40 years in the wilderness, they forgot they were people of covenant. They're, they did not have their children circumcised, which is a sign of covenant with God. They were still slaves in the wilderness trying to get by. And while they were in the wilderness, they spent a lot of time wishing they could go back to be slaves. What is it about bondage that's so attractive to us? We should really wrestle with that question. Because I, I think we like bondage because we don't have to think in bondage. It's just easier to be in bondage than it is to be free. But Christ did not die to enslave you. He died to set you free. The problem with the generation that died in the wilderness was they could not transition from the slave mindset to the free mindset. That's why they had to die there. Their children, for the most part, did not know what it was to be a slave. But you should also recall their children did not see the miracles. They heard about them secondhand. Not all of them, but most of them were born in the wilderness, and most of the miracles in the wilderness, not all, but most happened within the first 12 to 18 months of their freedom from bondage. So they're out there. Most of the kids are hearing the story secondhand, and the second generation who never saw the blessing of God and the miracles of God believed it way more than the generation who witnessed it with their own eyes. Do you see that? This is why faith is so much more powerful than sight, so much more powerful than even intellect. Faith is the ability to believe what God has said and believe in what God has done. And so that generation never had that, so they, they, it, they re-enter covenant, and the Bible says in Romans 2.22, I wanted to give you a New Testament spin on circumcision. It says, no, a true Jew is one whose heart is right with God, and true circumcision is not merely obeying the letter of the law. Rather, it's a change of heart produced by the Spirit. A change of heart produced by the Spirit. A person with a changed heart seeks praise from God and not from people. One generation did not know how to be free. One, the next generation did not know how to be a slave. Boy, there's so much we could apply there. But i got to move on because I've only got an hour and a half left. <laughs> Amen. Hallelujah. He's only got an hour and a half. What was it about the second generation that was different than the first? The first generation was, grew up making bricks, learning to conform. The second generation grew up in the presence of God. That's right. Their camp was built around the visible presence of God. Every morning they got up, the cloud of smoke was out there. Every night they went to bed, the pillar of fire was there. They were a people of presence before they were anything. That's what they grew up with. And they learned to fight. They didn't learn that in Egypt. They had to learn that out in the wilderness where they overcame many of their enemies right there. God brought them those enemies to train them. 
The miracles in the wilderness, they ate manna every day. Some, there was a bird delivery one day. That went a little crazy. Water fountain, that was a giant rock and watered everybody, you know. All these things are going on. Those miracles are powerful. We often think, man, those are great miracles. But I want to remind you that those miracles were survival miracles. God gave them to the people so they could survive. And as soon as they hit the promised land, those miracles stopped. And a new set of miracles began. Miracles of victory. Thriving miracles, if I could use that word, started up. And so this is the generation that I call, that we're calling for the, well, it's been called by many, the Joshua generation. They're the ones that go in. And if I could just, personal opinion, I think God's raising up a Joshua generation right now that's never been in bondage. They don't know what it is to be a slave, to theology or anything. They're coming at it from a whole different walk of life. And they have faith to believe God could do just about anything. That generation will change the world. Amen. We should be praying for that generation. We should ask God to enlist us in that generation, but that's another sermon. <clears throat> now, Joshua 5, 9, I want to share with you. So this is right after the circumcision. The Bible, God says to Joshua, says, And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the shame of your slavery in Egypt. So that place has been called Gilgal, which means rolled away to this day. I've rolled away the shame. What happened? What's this mean? God set him free from Egypt, but he couldn't get Egypt out of the people. They had to die in the wilderness. They spent 40 years, even though they were free physically on the outside, their hearts were still enslaved to the shame of Egypt. They were still ashamed of who they were. They were enslaved to their past. That's a key statement that will come back later in this message. They were enslaved to their past. They couldn't be free of it. It wasn't until they got through the wilderness, through the Jordan, through the circumcision, that God now says to them, okay, Egypt is over. Egypt is over for you. Your past is done. That's not who you are anymore. Now you're the Joshua generation. You're not losers anymore. They, they've been losing a long time. Now you are a victorious generation. So, also we got to remember, a key lesson, we got to remember this as Christians, it's not enough to leave our bondage. We have to enter our promise. It's not enough to leave bondage. We, need, we have to enter our promise. Now, so a little bit about the Joshua generation, and then we'll move into Joshua. But first of all, as soon as they got in, through the baptism, through the Jordan, circumcision, reinstating the covenant, then they had Passover. As soon as they got in. It's like God timed all this stuff. I mean, the dates hit, worked out, it's so weird. It's like God's in control. I don't know how this works. So they go through this, they have Passover, they celebrate it, um, they're healed, the shame's rolled away, everything back to Moses is gone, and they have like something like our, their Passover and our communion are very much, very much re related. Manna stops that day, now they're entering into God's thriving on their behalf rather than just surviving. So that happens. Then we move into what happens with Joshua. So Joshua, maybe the night of the Passover, that would have been like Friday night maybe, I don't know. We're not sure when, but he's out checking out the problem because that's what we like to do, right? We like to check out the problem. And so Joshua's looking at Jericho. It's a walled city, and they've got good defenses. Think like the Battle of Helm's Deep, you Lord of the Rings guys. Okay? Looks bad. Noah's out. I mean, Noah. I get some of these patriarchs mixed up sometimes. Joshua's out there walking around, and he stumbles across this dude. And the Bible says in... Uh, 
Joshua chapter 5, verse 13, second part. Uh, he says, hey, are you friend or foe? This is Joshua talking. And this is what the man says. He says, neither one, he replied. I am the commander of the Lord's army. Well, that will get your attention, right? At this, Joshua fell with his face to the ground in reverence. I'm at your command. So who was the commander here? wasn't Joshua, okay? And Joshua said, what do you want your servant to do? I want to, just one thing I need to teach here on worldview that's really important is this. There is a spiritual reality as well as a natural reality going on. And, and, and so we, we get a little glimpse at it in Joshua 5.13 because he's out looking at Jericho and he runs across the commander of the Lord's army. That's a spiritual matter. Okay, but Joshua's in the natural. Okay, so we need to get our, our eyes, our hearts wrapped around the fact that there's always a lot more going on than meets the eye. Now, let's look at what the commander told him to do. And so, these are the instructions. And I need to, we're going to practice one more time because we're going to have to do this a few times now. You ready? Okay, I'll try and like give you a pause and so you know, I'll try because I know I'm not very quick myself, so I assume that you're not as you're like me. And so, anyway. So the, the, the Lord, the commander of the Lord's army, gives him the strategy for Jericho. I know you're like stoked, right? You're thinking, I'm in Israel's army, strategy for Jericho, sign me up, this is going to be awesome. And so what's the strategy? Walking. <laughs> power walking. I guess it was power walking. I don't, I don't know. But walking and horn blowing. <laughs> That's right. Okay, they just had Passover, um, so there is, this is probably, probably on the Sabbath, Saturday. So God's plan, the commander's plan. Guys, I want you to walk around the city and toot your horn. Blow the shofar. The shofar was blown in times of victory and peace, okay? So when you blow the shofar, you're saying, we're winners. God's going to win, all right? So the priests are on the front line, and they... They, while they walk around the city of Jericho on Monday. Everybody gets up, all the commanders, the generals show up at Joshua's office the next morning. Okay, what's the plan today, Joshua? Joshua says, guess what, guys? We're walking. So day two, so that's Sunday, then Monday they're out walking. One trip around. All day. I mean, well, one trip. Tuesday, same plan. Wednesday, same plan. Thursday, same plan. Friday, <laughs> then we're back at Saturday, day seven, the Sabbath. Dude, this is heavy right here. Jews don't do stuff on Sabbath. There are those who have argued that this was one of those rare occasions that they have like an eight-day week. I don't buy it. I believe, based on a scripture I'm about to share with you, that God had them fight the battle of Jericho on the Sabbath for a specific reason. But day one through six, one trip and lots of tooting. That sounds ridiculous. <laughs> That's why half of you quit tooting. You're like, That's just stupid. Day seven. We walk around the city seven times. By the way, there was no talking the other six days. By the way, this was also an act of mercy on Jericho. The people could have escaped with their lives if they had just left the city. 
Day seven, seven trips around. The horns are tooting. The last trip, they blow the horns in a, in a different way, a more significant, victorious, triumph sound. And everybody shouts. And the wall of Jericho took a Sabbath and fell down and rested. Now, this is a silly military strategy unless God's your commander. Amen? So we should ask a question because I think this is important and because the rest of my sermon kind of rests on it. Why did God have them go at Jericho on the Sabbath? If Joshua had succeeded in giving them this rest, interesting that the writer of Hebrews should point to Joshua, isn't it? About the day of rest. God would not have spoken about another day of rest still to come. No, so there is a special rest still waiting for the people of God. For all who have entered into God's rest have rested from their labors just as God did after creating the world. You see, guys, victory comes. Hear me and hear me well. Victory comes when our action flows from a place of rest into God's promise. Our victory comes. I know you're like, I'm going to have to think on that. We win when we move from a place of rest in our Father into action toward His promise. Okay? When that happens, then God fights our battles. Maybe one way to think of it is like this. If you had to be in battle, would you like to be on the front lines or in a tank? Moving from a place of rest is resting in the tank when your enemy doesn't have any tanks. Okay? And so, we, as we get into this idea about God's goodness, we think about the battle of Jericho and know that all the while, the nation of Israel is displaying just the goodness of God, or God is displaying His goodness to the nation of Israel. He, he started with Abram. He went and found the guy. He was lost somewhere. And God says, hey, Abram, I want you to go where I tell you. I'll tell you when you get there. Let's go. It was a great plan. Kind of like marching around Jericho. And Abram steps in, out in faith and follows God. He, he saved the nation of Israel by putting them in Egypt in the first place because there was a huge famine in the land. And he paved a way for them through Joseph so they could be spared. And then 400 years later, way longer than we've been a country, God comes back and pulls them out of slavery, sets them free, produces all these miracles, all the, the ten plagues, the final one where he institutes the Passover and kills all the firstborn. And then he splits the Red Sea and brings them out into the wilderness. Gets them out in the wilderness and he feeds them with bread from heaven's kitchen. And he brings birds in when they start whining about meat. But again, that didn't turn out so well. And then when they're thirsty, he provides water for them out of a rock. And, and these awesome miracles, God is good. God is good. He comes out and in the wilderness for 40 years he sustains them. By the way, I guess I should mention that about, I don't know, 12 to 14 months after they get in the wilderness, they get to the promised land, they totally chicken out, they totally fail God, they, they do not trust him, they are not the Joshua generation, they are the generation of slaves who cannot let go of the comfort of their slavery. And so God brings them back in the wilderness to condition this nation to be an army and to, to let all the faithlessness die. 
Because the second generation who never saw the miracles has more faith than the generation who witnessed them with their own eyes. That blows my mind. Brings them through that. Parts the Jordan. Brings them into the Canaan land. Gives them the Canaan land. They, they take on odds far superior than them. They take on cities they should not be able to, to take. God even corrals all their enemies against them so they come and attack them so they don't have to walk so far to kill them. It's true. It's pretty cool. God is good. He was good to Israel, and he's good to you. He did all this. To get his son on the planet. He did, he went and found Abram to get Jesus here. It started long ago. He started that process. He got Jesus here. Jesus came to earth. And the Bible tells us in Philippians chapter 2 that Jesus somehow, in a way that I don't understand because there's no way I'll ever be smart enough, he took his divine privilege and somehow left it in a locker in heaven. I'm assuming there's a locker in heaven. He says he set aside his divine privilege. So Jesus came to earth and left his divine privilege in heaven. Why is that important? Even though Jesus was special in the sense that he was the second Adam and he was the first son, we have got to stop looking at Jesus like he is so special that he cannot be our example. Jesus came to be our example. we got to stop saying, well, that was Jesus. Jesus was showing us what we could do if God empowered us. Amen. So Jesus came to earth and he, he taught us every day what it looked like to walk with God inside of you. And he followed God around. He said, hey man, I don't do anything that God, the Father isn't doing. He spent a lot of time in prayer with God. He taught us. He loved on people. He showed us what love really was. He suffered. He lost people. Then he raised them from the dead. And then he was arrested. And then he suffered, and they beat him, and, they, and God in that beating put every sin and every failure and every sickness and every disease on Jesus Christ. And then Jesus Christ was nailed to a cross. And when he was nailed to the cross, God nailed our flesh, everything that's wrong with us, everything that's broken, all your mistakes, your entire past, he nailed it all to the cross with Jesus. And Jesus died on the cross when he was, just as he's finishing on the cross, he says, it is finished, to telestai, paid in full, this is over, your past is done. They take him down the cross, they put him in a grave, and three days later, I turned off my mic, I didn't want you to die. Wow! If I had one wish for Christianity today, is that we would not forget the cross, but we would walk over to the tomb. Amen. And we would realize it's done, Jesus is alive, and we would we'd stop celebrating the fact that our sins are nailed to the cross, and we'd start celebrating the fact that the life of Jesus now inhabits his believers, and we have power because of God in us to do things, to help people, to make a difference in this world. So God is good, all right? Now, we have a problem. God's good. Well, go ahead. We should, God's good. We should respond. All right, amen. We have a problem. Our problem is that sin thing. We have a hard time believing. Sin 
warps our mind, changes things. 2 Peter 2.14, I'm actually not going to take time to read it. I just want you to know that, yes, we have a problem. The Bible calls it the curse. You can call it sin, condemnation, corruption. That's what's wrong with the world. But Jesus is the way out of that problem. There is a way through the Red Sea out of the bondage of sin. And there is a way through the Jordan into a life with Jesus Christ, okay? So yes, we have a problem, but it's not God's problem. Why does that matter? It matters because we are really good at blaming God for our problems. Hey guys, sometimes we lose faith in God and lose hope with God because he doesn't deliver us from circumstances that we created with our own choices, right? Just because your marriage is having trouble doesn't mean God did that. Doesn't mean he's at fault with it. Just because your children might be not as well behaved as you like, or maybe they grow up and they struggle with their faith, their beliefs, or maybe they act badly. And I, I get a sense there are some parents in this room really praying for their kids today. That's awesome. Keep praying. That's not God's fault. Don't lose faith in God. That's why it's so important to hang on to the simple belief that God is good. Because the world is not good. The world is not good, man. It's, it was good. It got twisted through the, the fall and sin, and now it's not good. And so you have circumstances that are not good, but your circumstances should never define God for you. Okay? This is so important. All right? So, God is good. Good deal. You guys, are, they like that one. That's good. All right. Better than the toot. No more tooting. Got, it. got that one down. Oh, lost my worldview. If we can start by acknowledging that simple problem, that God's not the problem, that I'm the one who has the problem, then we can move into the solution. The great thing about God is, as soon as you own up to the truth, you can be free from the slavery. Okay? Because Jesus, this is what Jesus does. Is, but Christ has rescued us from the curse pronounced by the law. When he was hung on the cross, he took upon himself the curse for our wrongdoing. For it's written in scriptures, curses everyone who's hung on a tree. You and I no longer have to live in a state that is under curse, under God's curse from the, from the Garden of Eden. We don't have to live under the curse of our own past, our own sins, or our own mistakes. Jesus Christ died for all of that. Him being nailed to the cross is your old self being nailed to it. That debt has been paid. So when we acknowledge that truth, we can move into a different place. We can move out of that place of curse into a place of blessing. So let's think about this. You can actually be blessed. You can live your life blessed. Now, I know some people are like, uh, well, cool, does that mean I get a new car? <laughs> if you got a new car, but you didn't get an amazing relationship with Jesus Christ, you got robbed. Let's start where we're supposed to start. Oh, I believe in the Lord's abundance. But I also believe that he often calls us to be abundant in challenging circumstances. So, if you're going to move from the curse to the blessing, you've got to change sides, first of all. What do I mean? There was a lot of people in that city of Jericho. God gave them seven days to run for it. Only one family was saved, as far as I know. Rahab's family. She changed allegiances. She left the life she knew to become part of a nation she did not know. And if you ask me, that is the epitome of Christianity. Becoming a Christian is leaving the life you know to enter into relationship and life with those you don't know. 
Because that's what, that's what being a Christian is. It's learning a lot that you don't know. It's growing in things that you don't know. So you've got to abandon Jericho. You've got to understand, this world is condemned. The systems of the world, the way it thinks, the culture, you're not saving that. You can save the people from it, which is what we're called to do, and we'll get into that in a latter lesson. But you, you cannot save the system of the world. It's under God's judgment. Okay? So we can save people from it, but you can't save the system. So you got to change sides. I know I might get in trouble with somebody here, but it's okay. I can handle it. you got to be a Christian before you're an American. You do. And you may have to think about that, but you, you've got to be a child of God first. So you've got to change sides. Second, you've got you to celebrate the Passover. You're like, cool, we get to kill a lamb in church. No, that's not what I mean, but that's a cool idea for some, not all. The Passover, we celebrate every time that we have communion in a sense, because communion is connected back to the Passover. But when I say we have to celebrate it, what I'm saying is, often in ordinary faith, we call it the defining moment. You've got to have that moment, that epiphany that you realize, I'm not the answer, I'm not God. This world isn't the answer, it's, it's condemned. And you have, to tr you have to abandon Jericho, so to speak, and run toward God's kingdom, run toward God and put your faith in him. And so that's, that's what I'm talking about. So every time we have communion, that's actually what we're celebrating. Yes, we're celebrating the sorrow, or we're remembering the sorrow and the loss and the pain that it took to save us, but we're also celebrating the fact that there's a God in heaven who loves us so much that he went through all of that to bring us into his family. To me, if you ask me, we don't need God to do another thing to prove his love. That, that, you should be able to read the Gospel of John, hit chapter 19, and realize, man, God loves me. I don't need any more evidence. That's what we should be able to do. Okay, But often that's not what we're doing. We're like, God, if you'll give me this, then I'll know you love me. Or if you'll straighten out my kids. Or if you'll just make my husband do exactly what I want him to do. And here's a list. And if you... <laughs> And we, uh, we try and connect our circumstantial difficulties to God's love for us. But that's not what we should do. We should just know the cross was enough to demonstrate fully how much God loves us. And that's what we celebrate every time we have communion together. So we can be blessed. We just got to change sides. We got we to enter through the pathway of communion, everything it demonstrates. Acknowledgement of sin, repentance of that sin, trusting Jesus Christ our Lord and Savior. We call that moment or salvation, whatever you want to call it, you got to go through it. Now, you don't have to. You understand that, right? God, God is nowhere in the country with a giant Bible slapping anyone on the head and said, you got to get saved. Trust me. God doesn't roll like that. He invites us to come. He wants us to come. And until you come, you will live your life under the curse that the rest of the world is under, the same curse that destroyed Egypt, the same curse that destroyed Jericho, will eventually destroy this world. You have to come out of it, but in order to do that, um, you, you have to choose him. You have to step toward him. Now, the Bible says this in Isaiah. This is a verse that God has really used in my life lately, and it's, it's disturbing. It's beautiful and disturbing. I want to read it to you. The Holy One of Israel only in returning to me... And resting in me will you be saved. In quietness and confidence is your strength. I like that part. 
That's good. I'm like, yes, rest in the Lord. But I hate the last line. But you would have none of it. What's God talking about? We have this incredible urge to earn our way to God. And I'm not just talking about people who don't know him and, and lost what we would call lost people from inside the church. I'm not even talking about that. I see this incredible need to earn God's approval all over the place. It's been called the orphan spirit by many, Jack Frost and some others. And, and I just want you to know, if you're ever going to move out of that cursed place in life, you've got to return to God and rest. What does that mean? God hasn't just done most things it's going to take to secure your life. He's done it all. Every bit. I think sometimes we like to think that God made it possible for us to be saved. We like to think that, you know, God put Jesus on the cross, offered that out there, and now we trust Jesus Christ, and now we work really hard for his approval. And you know, I'm sure that there have been a lot of sermons you've heard that have affirmed that message, and I'm sorry. Because that's not true. The truth is, the just shall live by faith. If only you believe, is what Jesus said. Now, we're always like, yeah, but belief and works, they're all together. Belief's got to come first. In fact, I will say that you're living exactly what you believe right now. Your life is always a product of your beliefs. And I'm suggesting today that it's time to change them. In fact, I don't have this passage on the screen, but I'm going to turn to it in my Bible up here that I'm going to need my really cool, so I'll look smart, readers to see, because I got this really fine print Bible, because I wanted to read the fine print. Romans 12.1 Brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he's done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. There is no more restful place than laying on God's altar. Verse 2, don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you'll learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. You see, if you're ever going to move out of curse and into promise, you've got to let God change the way you think. How you're going to do that is you're going to come to Him. What many of us do is we're trying to get to Him. We're trying to do, we're trying to feel like we, it's okay to be there. I mean, think about it. The writer of Hebrews says, come boldly into the throne of grace. And here we are trying to earn a right to get into a place where we've been invited to. And so the, there's a change in our thinking that needs to happen. And that simply the change is this. God's enough. God's done enough. God's changed enough. Do you realize that the moment you had your defining moment, that moment that you said, okay, I'm letting go of what the world and me, putting Jesus on the throne, trusting him with my life, and that moment you were forever changed. You became a new creation. You became something the world had never seen before. You did. You did. 
Something that is a human being inhabited by the very presence of God. That's what you became in that moment. Now, you are no longer a sinner. You are now a saint. You are no longer a heart filled with deceitfulness and lies. You now have a brand new heart changed. God put a new one in you. Everything has changed for you now. Jesus Christ lives in you. Do you think he could live in a dirty vessel? No. He cleaned it up. You are holy. I got to Amen. Hebrews 4, 7. So God set another time for entering his rest, and that time is today. Today. Everybody say today. 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 God announced this through David much later in the words already quoted. Today you must hear his voice. Don't harden your hearts. Today you have an opportunity to move from curse to blessing, to move from failure to victory. You have that opportunity It's not in you. It's not about you. It's not what you do in regard to how good you've been or the nice things you've said or the the cool thing that you came to church today. It's because God is nuts about you. He thinks about you every moment of every single day, and he wants you in his family. As he brings you close, we move to a reality that we begin to understand that our past is no longer the problem. Our pride's the problem. We're trying to earn something God gave to us. And if you think about it, that's a big insult. I mean, if you're trying to give your kids a gift and then, well, I haven't earned it yet. After they woke you up from the floor, you would be a little hurt that they felt like they had to earn a gift. So we need to get to a place where we change our mind. That's what the whole circumcision thing's about. It's about God removing junk from us. How many of you know that when Jesus walked into, or when Jesus was carried into that tomb, he took your past with him? Why? Because well, he was about to take it to hell. Hell's the trash dump. He's down there burning right now. He's burning off that junk. Then on uh, Sunday morning, Mary Magdalene shows up. She looks at the tomb, and guess what? Your past wasn't there. Your Lord and Savior was alive. If we could start thinking like sons of God, if we could start realizing we're blessed, not cursed, stop waiting for the next bad thing to happen in your life and start anticipating the next good thing. And realize that as a son or daughter of the king who he loves so dearly, that there isn't a circumstance in your life that can't be changed, overcome, or will not ultimately work out for your way good. This is such good news. This is why they call the gospel the good news. Because it isn't just for that one moment where you realize, oh my goodness, I'm in trouble. I might die and go to hell and be under God's condemnation. The good news is that Jesus Christ died to give you life. And I think the original translation is life that rocks. Let's pray. Worship team. Heavenly Father, you're so good.
I just, uh, I just pray freedom. I pray for this. There's, there are people in this room right now that feel like they have been wearing a straight jacket of faith. And I, I, I know you're releasing that. And so I speak freedom. Freedom from him. We release freedom on the room. The presence of the Father on the room. Lord, if there is anyone here who has not placed their faith in Christ, I pray that today they will jump ship from Jericho. They will abandon that which is condemned and they will enter into a new life. And I just want you to know if that's you on my right and my left are prayer tables. Guys, if you're praying today, if you could go ahead and get there. You could head there during the song, the last song that we sing. And they can help you know and pray with you so you can let Jericho go and you can start living. There are other folks, though, who are just in a straitjacket and they don't really believe God's for them. Father, they, they don't know you think about them every second of every day. They don't know that you're good. They're struggling because they're in circumstances that are not good. And Satan lies. The enemy lies. They, our own heart lies. But Lord, you're so much bigger than any lie. You're so much bigger than our past. And you are so good. I pray, Lord, for them that they would be set free. I, I pray you rip those jackets, those straight jackets off and set hearts free in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Lord, Aside from that, you do anything you want to do. It's your house. We're your flock. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Let's stand.